Peace be with you. Ah, there's a lot of things going on in here, um, but I'm just really grateful to be here. It's been a while uh, that I've been had a heart for this, and, and God's given me, I think, uh, a, a desire to for this day to come, and uh, it just couldn't come uh, to a sweeter group of people. We have been so cared for and loved by you. It's been amazing the way you've done that for me and my family. I, I just... I'm, I'm so thankful. Uh, I texted Kate yesterday. She said, how's it going? I said, it's so good. These people are so sweet. And she said, I know I miss them, you know. And uh, so I, I don't know what God has created, but he's just created a bond with us early. And so I'm really thankful to be here. I'm thankful to be a part of this thing called Christ Community and to be your pastor. So thanks very much. Well, uh, what do you say we get into the Bible and hear from the Lord? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount to start off. So the other guys who come in and preach, I'm not going to make them uh, stay in that. They're going to get to just do whatever they can do since we're kind of having them come in and they're blessing our, our community. But we're going to be the weeks that I'm here in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start in the Sermon on the Mount because uh, it's a pretty good sermon. You know, of all the sermons I've heard, the, this one from Jesus has got a rank in the top, you know. I'm kidding. Of course, it's the best sermon that's ever been preached. So that's a good place to start. Uh, Open your Bibles to Matthew Matthew chapter 5 if you have one. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it'll be on the screen. But also, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. And so just let me know or or someone else you saw up here or one of the council members or just your neighbor you're sitting by and say, hey, I'd like a Bible, and we'll make sure that you get one of those. Matthew chapter 5, if you'd stand with me. After sitting down, if you'd stand with me out of respect for God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord, we come to receive from you, to hear from you, and to be ministered to by you. So do that from your word today. Speak to us and remind our weary souls that we have a great Savior named Jesus, and he has done it all for us. And let our hearts be filled with gratitude and thankfulness and worship. Do that, we pray, and we beg you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
As we begin, I want to kind of do a few background things with this text so that we're all on the same page. If we, if we had been already going through the book of Matthew, we probably would have talked about this, but we're kind of starting in, in chapter 5. So let's notice a few things together about Matthew chapter 5. The first thing I want you to notice is the speed of the text, okay? What do, we, what do I mean by speed of the text? Well, look, look with me at chapter 4, just above where we're at, in verses 23 through 25. It reads this, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from, from beyond the Jordan. If you're thinking about watching a movie, that was extremely fast, just what happened there, wasn't it? That was like in fast forward. You know, Jesus preaches, people come, he heals. It's like, whoa, whoa. where are the details, Matthew? You know, who was healed? Of what were they healed? How long had they been sick or with this disease? What did they say when Jesus healed them? Did they believe that Jesus was Lord after he healed them? What was the crowd's response? What about when these people went back to their families? You see what I'm saying? He just flies right through there. Then, chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. He's, He's slowing the speed down a bit, isn't he? Now we're getting to see Jesus' every move. He went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, ooh, do you see how slow it is now? Now we're, we're watching as his knees bend, you know, and he sits down. And then it gets even slower, and he opened his mouth. See how slow it is now as we watch Jesus' mouth open, and we're hanging, waiting to see what he's going to say. Now, why do I tell you that? So you'll think, this guy is so smart. Well, I appreciate you thinking that, but that's not the reason, okay? The reason is, is because Matthew is giving us a clue, and he's saying, look, I could have summarized the words of Jesus here, but it's just too good. I have to give you every single word that he stated here in this sermon because it's so important to my overall goal for you to understand who Jesus is and why he came. The person and work of Jesus, I've, I just can't fly through this. I've got to focus here. So he's shouting to us, hey, pay attention to every word that's about to come from Jesus. So that's the first thing, the speed of the text. Secondly, I have to remember that a little bit about who Matthew's writing to and um, what they would have heard. Okay? He's writing to a Jewish audience, and so they probably would have heard some things differently than we did. And when he writes to them throughout the book of Matthew, he's very concerned about uh, the fulfillment of prophecy. So you'll hear him over and over again say, and, it w- and this was to f- fulfill the prophecy that was written, and he includes some Old Testament text. And so he, he's asking and, and calling the Jewish people to look back to their scriptures and see that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of those things, that God has been doing this all along. And so here, when we look at our text, maybe what would, have, what would have come to their mind? You have Jesus going up on a mountain 
to deliver the words of God to God's people. That would have sparked something in them. I remember a time when a man went up the mountain and got a word from God and delivered it to the people. His name was Moses, and he gave to us the Ten Commandments. And now we have a better Moses, we have a better prophet, who's going up the mountain and delivering God's law to the people. And so let's have that in mind as well, as Jesus coming, not just something totally new, but he's, he's the better Moses, he's the better prophet. He's, he's, I don't think he's giving a better law, but I think he is giving a, a bigger picture of what of the law delivered by Moses. Look back at uh, Matthew 4.23, and you see how Matthew sets this up. He says, And he went through all Galilee, Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And because that was so fast, my question would be, well, what do you mean? The gospel of the kingdom. Like, give me some words that are included in that description, the gospel of the kingdom. Whatever do you mean? Insert chapter 5. I'm going to tell you what I mean when I say Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Here I go in chapter 5. So I think that's an expansion of this idea of Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. If you wonder what it sounds like, you're about to understand it. The, the thing that we know about it from chapter 7 at the end of this is that it was really surprising what he said. It wasn't what they were thinking they were going to hear. Because it, in, in verse seven twenty eight in Matthew, it says, and when he finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So this was surprising. This was not what they expected to hear. Well, this first portion here, verses uh, 1, really 2 through 12, it's often called the Beatitudes, okay? And it starts with each one, blessed is, and so then it, then it continues on. I, I want us to just give a, have a summary statement that we can kind of use that maybe you can, perhaps God would be so kind as to keep it in your mind and help us all to remember it. And so when the Beatitudes come to mind, this statement maybe will, will come up as well. Here's a summary statement that I came up with. To receive the kingdom is to be acquainted with your brokenness and extend the same to others. To receive the kingdom is to be acquainted with your brokenness and extend the same to others. This is sort of an intro to Jesus' sermon. And what he's saying is, I'm going to deliver to you this law. I'm the better lawgiver, and and I'm going to deliver that to you. But first, let me tell you something. Let me tell you about the ones that are going to receive it. Let me tell you about the ones who are actually going to hear it when I say it. Here are the ones that will be able to hear this message that I give. Well, what do you mean by brokenness when I say to receive the kingdom is to be acquainted with your brokenness? That's, I think, what Jesus is describing here in these verses. So he's going to tell us what exactly this brokenness is all about. To, be, to receive the kingdom is to be acquainted with your brokenness and extend the same to others. There's, there's two parts, I think, to this brokenness that, that I see in the text. The first part is a spiritual bankruptcy, and the second part is a desperate dependence. Then we'll look at um, extending the same to others through a sympathy that comes by understanding that first portion, and then finally a, a, a nice encouragement slash warning from Jesus about um, really following him, what it might look like, what might come about. So first, let's look at this 
idea of brokenness in two pieces. First, the spiritual bankruptcy. In verse 3, we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean, poor in spirit? These would be those who know they're sinners. They have no spiritual resources by which to carry out God's demands. They are spiritually bankrupt. It's not like I've got some spiritual resources here that I can, I can make a pretty good spiritual life for myself. No, completely bankrupt, these people. D.A. Carson says it like this. He's a, an author and a, a super smart guy. Poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is the conscious confession of unworthiness before God. As such, it is the deepest form of repentance. Think about Luke 18, 13, gives us a pretty good picture. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Someone who understands their spiritual bankruptcy. Paul would say it like this in Romans 7. The Apostle Paul, of all people, would say this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Even the Apostle Paul understood that he had a spiritual bankruptcy. Can you imagine the Jewish audience hearing this? Jesus saying, you know who the kingdom belongs to? Belongs to those who are spiritually bankrupt. Say what? I thought it belonged to us, the spiritual people. Hmm. Yeah, I think you guys have gotten it wrong. But this is not a new concept. And Matthew, using his, his way of, of harking back to the Old Testament, he, saying, he shows us it's not a new, new idea when he goes in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Look, look what's there. This is the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, The way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Listen to this. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. He's saying, look, it's always been about Jesus coming for the people in darkness. Let me show you from your scriptures that's what it's always been about. It's always been about Jesus coming, not for the good people, not, for, not to come and reward those who are doing such a good job, he's so amazed, but he's coming for those who have no hope, they're spiritually bankrupt, they're in darkness with no way of getting themselves out of it. On them, a light has shone. Now, they didn't know what that meant then. Matthew's saying, this is what it means. Jesus is the light. He's the one who comes and puts light into the darkness. That's what the story has always been about. Jesus continues then in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I I think the mourning is coming because they realize realize their spiritual bankruptcy, and it's not like it's, yay, we're horrible sinners. Woo, let's sin some more. That's not it. It's, ah, we're sinners, and no matter how hard we try, we can't get ourselves out of it. And there's a mourning that comes with that. And a sadness. They have no plan of getting themselves out of it. They see their humble estate and they have no hope. Why does, what does Jesus say this kingdom provides for those people? Does he say, 
Blessed are those who mourn, for all I will bring punishment, for I will bring judgment upon you. No, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he comes and comforts the downtrodden, and comes and comforts sinners, and gives them hope and new life in himself. Brokenness, not only is it this spiritual bankruptcy, but secondly, it is a desperate dependence upon God. Blessed are the meek, in verse 5 we read, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I know you guys use the word meek all the time in your daily talks, so I shouldn't have to define that, right? That's not a word we use often. In the Old Testament, meek meant kind of a a lacking of dependence on yourself and an all-out dependence on God and His strength. That was what meekness was. So think about just a humble disposition, a realization that you don't have what you need to have, and a dependence upon God for those things. As I think about people who are meek and think about any shred of meekness that might be within myself, I know how it comes, and it comes by being beat up by your sin. It comes by facing your sin and realizing you can't overtake it and trying and trying and realizing you just can't shake all of it, you know? And you become desperately dependent upon God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a, a preacher, he described this humble estate like this. The person who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God can, God and man can think of them as well as they do and treat them as well as they do. That's his description of, of meekness. Listen to Psalm 37. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. I looked up meekness in the thesaurus and I thought this was really not funny, but amazing. And meekness in the thesaurus, one of the phrases it included was, like a lamb led to the slaughter. I thought, wow, you guys got that one right. You know? Meekness. There's no one who is more meek than our King Jesus. He is the definition of meekness. This humble state of dependence. Verse 6 then, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If the question comes about from Jesus, hey, are you righteous? Now, the religious people of that day might have said, yeah, I mean, I've got some righteousness, sure. You know, maybe they, they might say it's not where it needs to be, but I've got some. And what about some of these Gentile sinners? What would they say? The, like the ones who couldn't even turn their, pull their head up to look at, to look at Jesus or to look at God. What would they say? <laughs> no, that's a ridiculous question. They would say something like Paul said in that Romans passage we just read. Who will save me from this body of death? No, there's no shred of righteousness at all in me. It's not 20%. It's not 5%. It's a big fat 0%. That's how much righteousness is in me without Jesus. Now, let's be, we can be honest about where we find ourselves today, can't we? If you knew all the thoughts and desires that go through my head and heart in a day, you would have never hired me to be your pastor. (laughs) But it goes both ways. Because if I knew all the thoughts and desires that went through all of your heads, I would have never come here. (laughs) Those people. Jesus, I don't know. That's a tall order there. Right? That's all of us, of course. We're desperate for a righteousness that's outside of ourselves. We can't create it. We can't discipline ourselves enough to attain it. We just need it to be gifted to us by Jesus. 
And it doesn't mean they love, again, the unrighteousness. That's not what we're saying. They, they want it. They desire it. They're hungry and thirsty for it. And Jesus is coming said, you'll, you'll, your hunger will be satisfied by the bread of life and your thirst by living water. That's where your righteousness will come from. Author and seminary professor Steve Brown tells this story of a homeless boy who knocked on the door of an orphanage. and The man answered the door and said, Son, I don't know you. What do you have to commend yourself to us? And uh, the boy who was dressed in shabby clothes kind of looked down and said, I thought these rags would be enough. And the man's heart just melted, and he said, It's enough, son. Come on in. That's, that's a beautiful picture of what Jesus says to us, isn't it? I don't know, Jesus. I don't have any righteousness. I got some rags. I got some filthy rags. It's enough. Come on in. If anybody told you it took anything besides filthy rags to come to Jesus, they completely lied to you. Only to say, I have no righteousness and I'm in deep need. Think about the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This brokenness, it's made up of spiritual bankruptcy and a desperate dependence upon God. Now, the second piece, this brokenness creating a sympathy for others. Look at verses 7 through 9. This is really, I think, where you hear a judgment towards the religious people by Jesus. He said, blessed, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, what I don't want you to hear is, hey, if you guys are merciful enough, I'll accept you into my kingdom. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about a, a state of the heart. He's saying that people who are merciful are those who realize that they need an unending fountain of mercy to drink from every day, check that, every second of every day. Those people are merciful t- towards others because they think, how could I, how could I hold, you know, withhold mercy from this pe- these people or from this person when I'm so desperate for it every second of every day? I'm not going to withhold it from them. And a, and a sympathy is, is drawn up in your heart. So if you lack mercy, I don't have five ways for you to be more merciful. What I have is say, pray to God that he would reveal to you your sinfulness and put it in front of your face and cause you to bow before him and say, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that, from that, fruit will start to grow of mercy towards others. Blessed are the pure, verse 8, pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now this one's a, I thought about this for a while. I did a lot of walking around this place actually thinking, what does this mean, God? And um, to fit it into the context. So uh, here's my take on it. Blessed are the pure in heart. And he's certainly not saying, right? When I find some pure in heart people, I'll accept them into my kingdom. We know that. That doesn't fit with the rest of what Jesus says. The only pureness of heart is that which we get from Jesus. But with that in mind, I think what Jesus is perhaps doing is contrasting what he says about the Pharisees and the religious people because he's constantly telling them that their heart is gross, ugly, filthy. Right? He's calling them whitewashed tombs. He's saying, you clean the outside of your cup and the inside is filthy. And so here, I think he's bringing judgment upon them as he says, blessed are the pure in heart, because later on, they're going to hear, your heart is wicked. 
And so this is the, the initial judgment that's coming from Jesus on that. Now, who would have heard, uh, blessed are the pure in heart, and said, uh, not me, I have no hope? Certainly, again, the people who understand their sin. Jesus is calling us to discern our hearts and see, does your heart line up with your actions? And for the religious people, they had religious actions that they, that they put their hope in, but a heart that, that was not the same and, and didn't go with the religious actions that they did. Instead, they were puffed up and conceited and judgmental towards other people and all these things. So I think that's what Jesus is getting at here when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. I think maybe he's talking somewhat about a, a heart that matches your actions. And while the, the heart of, of the sinner's was not pure in the sense that it was perfect. It certainly was honest about the actions it was connected to. Discern your heart, Jesus says. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This idea of being sympathetic towards others, peace was certainly not something that described the religious people of that day, was it? Not at all. They were always causing division, always causing problems, always making people feel separate from them rather than making peace and feeling like they were with them. Why in the world would people be so non-peaceful? Well, my guess is because they knew nothing of God's work to bring peace towards, to them. They knew nothing of their, their lack of peace with God that needed to be healed. And when you come to understand that, a God who is wrathful against sin, and you see your need for peace, and then you hear this message of Jesus who comes and provides peace with you and God, that shapes, similar with the mercy thing, it shapes how you approach others and desire to see others and relationships of peace. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. We certainly didn't have this sort of understanding. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to rec- reconcile himself to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Number three then, this final encouragement or warning Jesus says, um, just so you know, you'll be persecuted if you're a part of my kingdom. You'll be persecuted for your brokenness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, initially, when you see something like persecuted for righteousness' sake, it's easy. The first thing that came to my mind was, okay, persecuted for, for doing such good things. I, there's no doubt that happens. But I, it just doesn't seem to fit in the context of Jesus' words here. Here, I think he, he's talking, who would have heard persecution for righteousness' sake and would have said, I know what that's like. Wouldn't the people who the the religious people were persecuting because they're not righteous, wouldn't they have said, I'm persecuted for righteousness' sake, for my lack of righteousness all the time? 
because I don't measure up. I'm constantly persecuted for my lack of righteousness. And if, if that's true, if that's the proper way to, to see this verse, then the next part that Jesus says is one of the most searing things he could possibly say. He says, So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Imagine the religious people of that day hearing Jesus talk to these irreligious people, talk to these Gentiles, talk to these non-Jews, and hear him say, they persecuted the prophets that were connected to you guys. No. The prophets weren't connected to these guys. Those are our prophets. Those are people, those are people of the Jewish heritage. And Jesus says, these people are connected to my kingdom. These people are connected with the prophets. Goodness gracious. Saying stuff like that will get someone killed. You know? That's unbelievable. Well, if part of receiving the kingdom of Jesus brings us to be acquainted with our brokenness, be dependent and sympathetic towards others, what do we do with that today, tomorrow, this week? What do you suppose God would do if his kingdom is about these things, about brokenness? What do you suppose he might do in order to to bring you to his kingdom? Wouldn't it be God's kindness, actually, to reveal to us our sinfulness? Wouldn't it be a work of his grace to do that? Couldn't it be a work of, of God to, to put circumstances in our life to make us totally dependent upon Him? Circumstances that none of us would ask for, circumstances that none of us would wish on anyone else, but circumstances that we go through and in the midst of and afterwards say, I wouldn't have wished that on anyone. It was terrible, but I've never known of my union and communion with God like I did there. I've never known of a closeness like that until I went through this horrible season. That's why each of the Beatitudes, I think, include this second part, which is, for theirs is the kingdom, for they will be comforted, for they shall inherit the earth. Your brokenness, in your brokenness, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to show you that I'm sufficient, and I'm going to meet you there and provide for you there. It puts a little spin on the way we see our sin, doesn't it? He could just remove it. He's got all authority. He could just go, boom, sin done. You get saved and your sin just gone. He could do that. But he doesn't do that. Here's what I think that means for us as a community. Instead of sin being something that we hide and try to put away and try to pretend like we don't have in our life, I think it's something that could point us to God's grace. Maybe, maybe when we see our sin, we say, here's an invitation from God. Here's an invitation from God for, for me to be brought near, for me to repent and once again reestablish myself and, and re-understand myself as, as one who his, his blood has completely covered and has been saved by grace. Maybe this is a chance for me to rehearse the gospel again to my weary heart as I see this ugly sin in my life. Maybe that's what God is, is doing amongst us. You know? maybe, he's, maybe his work is actually to, to kill us so he can resurrect us. 
you know, to mess us up so he can remake us. And that's what he's up to. Listen to this, these lyrics by a song by King's Kaleidoscope. They say, all that haunts me, all that leaves a stain, only sings of the sweetness of my Savior's grace, a fortunate fall. My sins are stories of grace to recall. I glory in my sins forgiven. Jesus was saying here in the Beatitudes, repent of your independence. Become someone who is dependent upon me. Those are the people who are going to hear what I have to say following in this sermon. Now, we're in a season of Lent. Why in the world would we put this on the church calendar? Who thought, hey, you know what's a good idea? Let's spend a couple months thinking about our sin. Who wants to do that? That sounds horrible. It does, unless we can now, because of the Redeemer, not run from our sin, but turn and face it and say, that is extremely ugly. Thank God that He's provided Jesus to save me from that body of death. And there's a freedom that now comes, that we can actually spend time in Lent repenting of our sin, focused on our sin, looking at our sin, not just staring at it and that's it, but but seeing it for what it is and being thankful that Jesus would save a people like us. So if you see your brokenness today, I want to encourage you to see this as an invitation from Jesus, an invitation to be a desperate sinner and one who can find forgiveness and rest and life in his work on your behalf. I want you to think about right now the thoughts that you're trying to get out of your head and I'm trying to get out of my head about your sinfulness, about specific actions and thoughts and desires and inactions and not loving God like we talked about earlier, not loving God with all of your heart and in our prayer of confession and, and not loving each other like we ought to. Just think about those things. And instead of doing what we always want to do, which is put those away, cover them, do some sort of penance to make it better, like, okay, today I'll go do something to kind of erase that. Um, I'll dismiss it. I'll hide it. I'll think about happy things. I don't know. Instead of doing that, let's just face it and say, yes, those things are true about me, and I'm a sinner. But the good news about realizing that is that Jesus said something about it in Matthew chapter 5. And he says that's the people he came to save and provide for. So that's really good news. So don't miss that first part, because then you'll miss how sweet the news is that Jesus has come. So Jesus is standing today with his arms wide open, and he's saying, saying, come to me. I have mercy for you. I have forgiveness and rest for your weary soul. I have a river of blood that drowns all of your sins. And I have perfect righteousness that is yours. Come and receive it. Christ's community, you are loved and you are forgiven. Let's pray. God, as we think about your love for us. It's really staggering. And all of us are guilty of 
not wanting to look at our sin, not wanting to claim how big of sinners we are, not wanting to speak a word about some of the the deep and ugly desires of our hearts, the things that we think about. Thank you, Jesus, for freeing us from those things so that now we can be honest about who we are in front of you and we can come to you pleading for mercy and you're so faithful to give it to us. So Jesus, thank you for living the perfect life which we never could. Thank you for dying the death and accepting the wrath of all of our sin. And then thank you for rising in triumphant victory so that we now can say we have life in him, our King Jesus. We love you so much. Work this deep into our hearts throughout this week, we pray. In your name, amen.